This is an ABC podcast. How good is Australia? Peter Dutton will know he's alive each and every day. All those other inner city raving uh, lunatics, the two people who died were most likely uh, people who voted for the Green Party. That is such a bubble question. I'm just going to leave that one in the bubble. Hello and welcome to The Party Room. I'm Patricia Carvellis, the host of RN Drive. And I'm Fran Kelly from ABC Insiders. And PK, I think it's fair to say that one topic dominated politics this week and dominated the nation, really, and that's fires. We saw catastrophic fire conditions in New South Wales. It's the first time since the new fire ratings were introduced back in 2009 that this highest level of danger has been forecast And no wonder, because look what's been happening around the country, particularly the eastern seaboard. As as we're recording this, 61 fires are still burning in New South Wales. In Queensland, 80 fires are still burning. Two homes reportedly destroyed across the country in WA by a bushfire. There's been another life lost. I mean, these are indeed catastrophic, aren't they? Certainly, and they've been horrifying to watch. And, of course, at the centre of the discussion has been these longer fire periods. This is unprecedented territory we're in, and it really is. The fact that we're having such a long fire season that can start as early as it has in such a ferocious way has really been why it's become a point of conversation around policy settings as well. And it didn't take long for politicians to weigh in. Um, Of course, politicians are entitled to talk about the policy settings, but I reckon it went a bit further than that, Fran, and it was a politicisation. Personally, I think the tone was wrong. This whole notion that we shouldn't be talking about climate change at a time of such disaster and tragedy, I think is not correct. I think we can do that and we should be doing that as we have at other times during the drought, of course. I mean, there are these climate-related issues and they need those issues need to be discussed again and again until we get the action right and, and the response right and the mitigation right. But it is the tone. And uh, at the beginning of the week, we had Greens MP Adam Bant having a go at the, at the government. Michael McCormack and Scott Morrison bear some responsibility for what is happening at the moment because they have done everything in their power to make these kind of catastrophic bushfires more likely. And that brought a response from Nationals leader Michael McCormick. That's what Adam Bant and the Greens and Richard Di Natale and all those all those other inner city raving uh, lunatics. And, and quite frankly, that's, that's how he was carrying on yesterday. That's what they want. We're not going to go down that path. And that's the problem right there. I mean, raving inner city lunatics, you know, this kind of name calling is undignified, unparliamentary and not useful at all at this. All it does is divide people in, a, in, an, in an electorate nationally that is already divided at a time when the country needs to be pulling together. Now, as I say, I don't think it means we shouldn't be having a climate change debate talking about policy and policy responses, but it didn't stop there, PK. We had Green Senator Jordan Steele, John then calling the government borderline arsonists. Really, I, I think some of them did get the tone wrong. What do you think? Oh, they absolutely did. And and let's just play this. This was also Barnaby Joyce. He was the Nationals leader and he made these comments this week, which, uh, well, it's fair to say they were quite controversial. The two people who died were most likely uh, people who voted for the Green Party. So I'm not going to start attacking them. Barnaby Joyce made the comment while blaming the Greens for increasing the threat of bushfires. He later clarified the remark, saying no matter which party an individual votes for, they do not deserve the tragedy and went on, said, you know, he's taken out of context. Some of his colleagues believe that. Others think, uh, well, he just should 
I think a few have said to me that maybe you should zip it. That's what a few have actually said to me. There should be maybe less talking and maybe let the people who are actually fighting the fires do their work because that's been the issue this week too. There is a sense that these politicians are grandstanding for their own political constituencies, right? And I think they should be called out for it. The kind of language we've seen used is not about debating policy settings in some cases. It's actually just about playing to particular bases. And I think that that's counterproductive, not useful. And I I wouldn't be surprised if voters are pretty angry about it, actually, particularly the voters living in some of these communities that are fire-threatened and they're not only worried about the immediate threat but sort of their long-term interests as well. What does it mean if we're going to have these longer fire periods for their ability to stay in these places? These are big conversations we should be having. I think the point is that really the useful discussion to be having now, and perhaps we could have been having it before we got to this point in the fire season again, but we need to be having it, is the point raised by former New South Wales Fire Commissioner and other fire chiefs, uh, Greg Mullins and others. They sent a letter to the Prime Minister back in April calling on the government to anticipate an intense fire season in advance of that to recognise the need for more national firefighting assets, including large aircraft. Now, that call went into the caretaker time of government, so perhaps that explains why just before an election there was no response. That that was an important call, and the point they made in that letter that they sent to the Prime Minister was that Australia's emergency resources were still equipped for what was happening in the 1970s to the 1990s, and their warning the government that we are in a time of unprecedented fire threat, that everything has changed due to climate change. So that was a warning they've been giving for some time. They're still giving it now and they're calling for a national inquiry into whether Australia's emergency services are adequately resourced to deal with increased risk from natural disasters caused by climate change. And that is a useful discussion for Australia to be having once the firefighting is over. That's absolutely right. And not only useful, We have to have that conversation. There is actually no choice. It's not sort of will we or will we not. There is no choice. We have to have that conversation. And I I suspect we will be having this conversation. And the government is very well aware that it needs to be thinking about its policy responses here. We know even the Treasurer, Josh Frydenberg, acknowledging this is going to have a budgetary impact. This is a real thing. There's nothing kind of academic or ideological or separated from reality here. This is actually connected to what we're seeing. We know because it's not just ideologues that are raising it. It's actually people fighting the fires. It's people living in communities. It's people who are uh, experts in these areas. Mm. So it's 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 you know it's been quite. Uh... It's just frustrating to watch. I've got to give some credit, though, to a couple of people. Anthony Albanese has spoken out. He said that politicians should stop trading insults over the cause of the fires in New South Wales and Queensland. Even the Prime Minister made some comments, I think, too, earlier this week. We're recording on a Thursday morning, demanding an end to the bickering over the bushfires after what really was a dramatic escalation. So the the leaders of the main parties have kind of warned, even on their own sides in the case of the Prime Minister, because he was responding to the Barnaby Joyce comments, he was asked that question, that the tone has to change. But at the end of the day, the government is going to have to 
really get together with the states, councils, I mean every tier of government and think about the way that we fight fires, the way that we prepare in the very brief periods before fires hit, mm. because that's what's happening now. Fire periods are longer and there's uh, the, the time frames for actually being able to prepare are actually becoming much, much more narrow and that's very difficult. But that's just, it's the new normal. Yeah. There's no, there's no conversation. It's called mitigation it against climate change, and that's what we need to be doing. And until and unless we are openly and nationally recognising that climate change is a real thing, then we're not putting it in the correct context, and therefore that's holding back. I think the discussion about mitigation policies. <laughs> Andrew Proben, political editor for ABC News. Welcome to the party room. How are you going? Very well. I love what you've done with the place. Once again, seem to have changed the decor here. <laughs> oh, you've got such an eye, Andrew, such an eye. Andrew, um, we've been talking a little bit already about bushfires that are going on and the, the politics within that and that whole debate around when is it OK and not OK to talk about climate change. Scott Morrison, the Prime Minister, called on politicians, including from his own side, to take it down a few notches. Well, I think these are very unhelpful. Um, but again, I'm not going to be distracted by debates happening between politicians. The last thing that people in real need and urgent crisis need at the moment is hearing politicians shout at each other. So I think the PM is right about that, Andrew. Oh, look, I think so. I mean, this is all about tone and being sensitive to people who are really going through a, a catastrophe. People have lost their lives, lost their homes, lost their livelihoods. So you have to be sensitive to that. But I mean, I, at the same time, we are a very robust democracy that also needs to have discussions at particular points of time. And, and I think that climate change is something that if the mayors in these fire-ravaged towns are talking about it and some of the officials, then I think it's uh, entirely appropriate that we all talk about it without some of the almost hysterical comments from some of the politicians of all stripes. Let's talk about the pressure on the government, though, as a result of not the squabbling part, but the, the very significant interventions by people who have real skin in the game, who know this area and, of course, Greg Mullins is key here. He's the former Fire and Rescue New South Wales Commissioner and, and a councillor on the Climate Council. He and these 22 other former emergency chiefs wrote to the PM in April and September predicting this bushfire crisis that we're in. Mm. His intervention into this conversation has been incredibly powerful in my view. I don't think anyone would dispute that because they're actually having a big press conference explaining what they demand of the government. What pressure does the government feel under given the kind of demands that they're making and they're making very specific demands too in terms of the capability of firefighting, not just around climate change, but actually the mechanics of how to fight it. PK, I think there are two aspects here. One is the climate change and with climate change, it's baked in now, let's face it. No matter what Australia did, we are dealing with a warmer, drier environment and that means that the other side of this equation is what do you do to mitigate devastating fire that's all the more critical and this is where it, you know it's significant he, he talks about these mega fires uh, coming uh, in greater number but if you look at history and the, the the way that that under since white settlement there have been some very, very big fires. I mean, some of the biggest were actually in the 1850s, like something like 5 million hectares were destroyed in Victoria from the New South Wales border, basically 
all the way down to the coast. So it's it's not just a modern phenomenon. It's it's the nature of the bush. When it comes to things like hazard burning, there has to be a, a very big discussion as to how you do it. Uh, perhaps learning uh, more from indigenous folk. I was very taken with this book. In fact, I've written about it this week, uh, a book by uh, Bill Gamage. It came out a few years ago, but I thought, I'm going to revisit it this week because he talks about how the Australian landscape, its very flora have been, were changed by fire stick farming, that indigenous folk were burning mosaic patterns across the nation, basically every single part of Australia has been touched by fire, deliberate fire at some stage over the millennia. That has not only made the bush a big garden when uh, in 1788, but it, it meant that this big garden needed to be tended. This argument that we see in politics about what is a national park and uh, is it you know wilderness or, or, or whatever, if you follow the theory that Bill Gamage puts, a theory that is embraced by folk like Bruce Pascoe in Dark Emu, then you realise that Australia is really, the wilderness that we have is not really wilderness, it's a garden that's got overgrown, Uh, consequently we need to tend to it. And that's where Greg Mullins and other folk go to, that we, we perhaps do need to do more burning, but it's a very complicated and difficult thing to do, burning well, that's when changed you've too. got a drier... I mean, yeah, you've got I a mean, drier continent and, f- and fewer opportunities. The nature of the bush has changed because the population has increased exponentially and, and therefore, mm. you know, people are living up against the bush so much more intensely. That makes everything more difficult. It makes the hazard reduction more difficult, doesn't it? Because you have to have more rules around when firefighters can do that hazard burns, how they can do it. You know, what happens if the smoke's too intense and it becomes a health hazard for the population? They have to stop. We've seen that this Mm. year happening in Sydney, you know, for instance. So it's a lot more complex, but the point is we need to be planning for it. And that's what that letter and this call again from these former fire chiefs has been all about. We have to have these debates, not phony debates about, oh, blame the greenies for not wanting to clean up the bush or, you know, it's not climate change, it's just what always happens. We need to get real. I noticed that in the US this week, there were senior executives from the um, Fed Reserve, the, the equivalent to our Reserve Bank, holding a climate change conference, basically. And what they said was that climate and weather related events have cost the US directly more than 500 billion US dollars over the past five years mm. and that in addition to causing damage to the to the natural resources for instance global warming is expected to disrupt business operations and economic activity in the coming years so this is an an economic question as much as a lifestyle question as much as an environmental question oh totally and we are we are unfortunately on a continent that has been shaped by fire. We do have this real clash of priorities, as you were referring to. I mean, how do we protect and prevent the urbanisation of Australia becoming itself a a hazard to, to life, given that we have people living ever closer and wanting to live ever closer to bush or, or, or the like? And how do we cover the cost of rescue, prevention, all these these matters that are so so difficult, and isn't it interesting how this argument happens 
almost every year now where you've got the greenies or the conservationists being blamed by others for not allowing the hazard burning but no one ever seems to learn from it. We, we just It's utterly circular. It's quite depressing, really. It is depressing, and especially when people are actually fearing for their lives. It's actually outrageous that it goes on. Mm. But I just want to get from you what you're hearing inside the government about how they may respond. So we know the pressure's on. Mullins has tried to put the pressure on and the other ex-fire chiefs, other experts. In terms of how the government might respond, now, they will have this meeting with David Littleproud, who is responsible for this area of emergency disasters and so forth, drought, all of that issue. So they're going to get that meeting. But what's the thinking inside the cabinet about what they need to do here? At this moment, I can't really tell you. I mean, the government has effectively vacated um, this week because of the bushfire crisis. and But the, the pressures on the government include trying to have a rethink about fire management strategy. And that is something that, in fact, the the Howard government was looking at years ago after the 2003 Canberra fires, which were actually damaged more homes. 500 homes were destroyed in that fire, four killed. There was talk then about hazard reduction fires. I think that that will be revisited, but that has to include the states and who funds it? At whichever way you cut it, it's going to take more money. And the Federal Treasurer, Josh Frydenberg, conceded that in an interview with Peter Van Onselen this week. Well, it's definitely uh, had a negative impact on the budget. But is there any risk to the surplus in that? We uh, are heading in the right direction when it comes to delivering the budget uh, surplus. Uh, that's our commitment that we took to the Australian people. Rest assured, uh, when it comes to people impacted by uh, disasters... Um, by the drought, um, by other events, the government is always doing what it can to support these communities at their time of need. So that's the Treasurer speaking, I guess, in the same similar terms as we've had the government talking about responding to the drought, which is helping the people in the here and now. And there is that immediate hit to a budget. But there's got to be a bigger investment, surely, that the government would be aware of, Andrew. And perhaps they're going to need to have a a response to fighting fires and, and mitigating against climate change in terms of fires as they have for drought. You know, for the drought, we've got the $5 million future fund, for instance. There is going to have to be some discussion nationally, isn't there, about the costs of mitigation, and that goes to the cost of firefighting equipment as well. Absolutely. But again, some of those costs are going to be um, borne by the states. And when it comes to a lot of the fire damage, let's hope most, most are insured. So there are some aspects that are helpful to the government. There is no doubt also that the drought is in and the fires, consequently, uh, will have an effect on the budget. But you can tell in that uh, little excerpt that you played that the determination to land that surplus is not diminished one bit. In fact, that is the absolute number one political priority of this government, to land that surplus. And, well, what happens afterwards? Well, maybe uh, uh, we, we might see more spending in the next financial year, but this this financial year, they are going to land that surplus come what may. There is a still a, a tension you, you sense between the government and the Reserve Bank as to whether uh, the economy does need extra stimulus, but the government is resisting doing any big splurges, at least until later next year. Yeah, they certainly are. Look, I just want to switch for a moment just to talk about what happened in the Senate this week or what didn't happen in some ways because the Senate was sitting. We started with a discussion about the bushfires, of course, and climate change, the bigger discussion there. But 
the Ensuring Integrity Bill, which is, you know, commonly known as the union busting bill for those who, you know, think what's ensuring integrity actually mean? And you'd, you'd be normal to ask that question. Um, was going <laughs> against to, us. <laughs> yeah, we're not normal. It mm. uh, was going to pass this week. That was the plan. What went wrong, Andrew Proven? What went wrong is that the votes slipped away. Now, the government does need the crossbench to support this bill to get it through. And yet we have Pauline Hanson and Jackie Lambie who are being very cute with their vote. Pauline Hanson started the week pushing for some changes on the dairy front. She wanted a minimum price for for milk. That was struck down in the Senate when Central Alliance and uh, Corey Bernardi, I believe, helped the coalition kill it off. Now, it, it was narrowly defeated, 31 votes to 30. I think she was a bit annoyed by that. She's realised that um, she's no longer that critical vote and there's a lot of focus on Jackie Lambie's vote. Jackie Lambie's also being, they're all being lobbied very, very heavily by the unions and the ACTU has, and the teachers union and other unions have been saying, well, just be careful about this bill because it it could see teachers and nurses affected. There are some assurances from the government that that wouldn't be, that's neither the intention nor the likely result of this bill, but those votes have slipped away from the government. As we speak, it doesn't look like that bill will even be debated or reach that final vote until well the next time the Senate sits, which is a, a fortnight away. That said, if the government can obtain the support of Jackie Lambie and Pauline Hanson, you could expect them to stop what they're doing and bring on that vote immediately. But I don't see that happening today. So we'll have to wait and see. There's only two sitting weeks left for this year, isn't there? That's right. After this week, as this week is only uh, a Senate sitting week, we have a fortnight and that is just the uh, the pre-Christmas ones that end in about uh, the end of, well, the first week of December they end. So there's not not many opportunities. That said, there's not a great deal of uh, of work on the, on the agenda. So. <laughs> oh, sorry, Dolores. <laughs> laugh, but that said is pretty light on the agenda. And I challenge anyone to watch uh, Senate Question Time and think, goodness me, what are they doing here? Oh, look, I did (laughs) and then I thought... Isn't it awful, PK? Why am I on So I had to wake you up. No, I was just like, honestly, I had an existential crisis. Let's just talk about it for a second. I did. I thought, why am I even watching this? This is actually like the Seinfeld thing. This is an episode about nothing. Am I oh, right? It's so f- and it's so formulaic. You get a, a question that's not answered and then you get opportunities for supplementaries. I mean, I just think that the whole thing needs to be totally rejigged. I really hope that uh, at some point they get rid of the Dorothy Dixes, which are just a total waste of time. I hope they do that in question time. Yeah, proper. so long as that doesn't give them an excuse to shorten question time or have it less often, I reckon. I think question time's important. It is very important, but I, I think get, getting rid of the Dorothy Dixes would be marvellous. I mean, yes. look at what happens in, in um, the House of Commons. You have questions from the government side that really go to issues of the day, constituent matters that can be quite prickly. Whereas here, it's a Dorothy Dixer is just, you know, it's basically... Tell me how a, wonderful underarm, your program yeah, is, Minister. Underarm throw, which you belt for six, you know. Question time bloody awful. Bloody awful. But you've not been bloody awful. You've been bloody excellent. Andrew, see you later. Thank you. (laughs) Thanks, guys. So we're bringing back a little something exciting, something you might remember from some previous seasons, and that is 
trading preferences. We'll get to your questions next week. You can send them, of course, to us using the hashtag The Party Room. But trading preference, because Fran's got a really good one, because there's been some mm, inappropriate language in the Senate this week, Fran. Well, yeah, I mean, it's not too bad, it's not too colourful, but it was enough for the President of the Senate, Scott Ryan, to issue a warning to all senators, as is his right, to remind them about proper language. And this was apparently brought on by the fact that the words piss and arse were used in the (gasps) Senate. Now, I missed that, but I've since caught up that one of the references was Labor Senator Deborah O'Neill quoting a story saying the Nats couldn't organise a piss-up in a brewery. Now, personally, I don't think there's anything too wrong with that. It's a pretty colourful Aussie phrase. I never use the word Aussie, but there you go. It seemed appropriate. Aussie, Aussie, Aussie. Uh, Aussie, Aussie, Aussie. Anyway, it was one, just a reminder that there are children watching in the gallery and they should watch their language. But he also mentioned the fact that many senators had lodged complaint about the language used by the Green Senator, Jordan Steelejohn, which we referred to earlier when he talked about government as borderline arsonists. So I think it's in the context that Scott Ryan's perhaps been moved to issue this warning because all week, and as we have this on, on this podcast, been talking about the tone and some of the, the, the language used to refer to each other politically in the context of the fires. And I think it's in that context, perhaps Scott Ryan decided to issue a warning and say, just remember who you are, what your job is, who's listening to you, uh, the level of respect, not very high, that the community is holding you in at the moment. And at a time like this, let's just be a little bit mindful of our language. I think it was in that context. I think so. Okay. No swearing. Um, and that's it for the episode. You can, of course, speak to us on Twitter whenever you want using the hashtag The Party Room. You can tweet us questions too, can't you, Fran? You can. Tweet us your questions, your feedback, your comments, your concerns, anything that's really bothering you. If you want PK and I to help, we're here to help. Relationship counselling, <laughs> well, your kids yeah. are annoying you, you don't, you, know, you don't know what to wear on the weekend. All of that. What to cook tonight. Email us at thepartyroom at abc.net.au. Okay, see you, Fran. <laughs> see you, PK. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.